Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to Easter week. I hope you're having a good week already and preparing your heart and mind to celebrate uh, Good Friday. Uh, be with us on Friday at 6 o'clock for our Good Friday service. Remember, we're going to have communion that night, um, so you can use any kind of bread in your house, any kind of beverage you want to choose, and I'll lead you through that process along with, with a lot of great music and some words out of the Word of God. So I hope you'll be with us for that. And then Sunday morning, our Easter service will premiere at 10 a.m., so make sure you invite as many people as possible to watch that. It's going to be a great weekend. And uh, yeah, I, I'm going to miss seeing y'all. I'm going to miss that the excitement of that full sanctuary and, and us worshiping together and, and praising the Lord for His resurrection. But Christ is no less risen just because this year we can't gather. Uh, we'll always remember this Easter. God is going to do amazing things, even though we're not doing what we usually do, what we enjoy doing. We're still going to worship. We're still going to praise. And it's still going to be wonderful. So tonight we move on with our Tough Questions series, and this is one that hits really close to home for pretty much all of us. And it's about mental illness. And the reason it hits so close to home is, well, mental illness is incredibly prevalent today, and, and we're becoming much more aware of it than we were previously. I remember growing up, mental illness was something we joked about. Uh, mentally ill was uh, something you called someone when you wanted to insult them, or more likely you'd call them something like nut job or crazy or loony. Uh, we don't really use those terms much anymore. We don't joke about this anymore because we're starting, finally, starting to realize how serious this problem is, how prevalent it is. So here's some statistics. I get this from the National Alliance on Mental Health. Uh, they estimate that one out of five American adults experiences mental illness at some point in any given year. So every year, one out of five Americans go through this. Uh, within their lifetimes, one out of four Americans will experience serious mental illness. Two weeks ago, we talked about what the Bible has to say about suicide. Well, mental illness is a contributing factor, strongly contributing. So uh, almost half of all suicide victims have some diagnosed mental illness. And after talking to people after suicide, after, after the doctors talk to their family, they, they discovered that at least 90% of people who commit suicide had showed symptoms of mental illness, even if it wasn't diagnosed. And when we talk about mental illness, we're talking about things like anxiety disorder. Anxiety by far is the is the most common form of mental illness in America today. It's 48 million Americans who struggle with some form of anxiety disorder, but it also means depression. It means PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It means bipolar, and there's a whole range of other disorders that are under that category. It does not include autism. One out of 54 children today are diagnosed as being somewhere on the autism spectrum. It doesn't include Alzheimer's disease, which uh, the, the estimate is that 5 million Americans today have. And those are definitely diseases that affect thinking, behavior, sociability. And so you think uh, if one out of five Americans struggle with mental illness, plus you add on those other disorders, that's a lot of people in our society that are struggling with illness, that you can't really find in the muscles or the heart or the lungs or uh, the kidneys. This is something that doesn't show up in a physical sense. Uh, and, and that means there's a lot of people struggling in ways that we're still figuring out how to help them. And, and this subject especially hits close to home for me. My own daughter, uh, who's beautiful and brilliant and funny and talented, she has struggled with depression and anxiety 
for almost a decade now. Basically, it hit her when she entered her teenage years. And that's been, she's doing really well now, but it's been a, a difficult journey for her and scary at times, especially for Carrie and me. And the fact that she was able to graduate college with two majors, not just one, and get it done in three and a half years and not four, uh, even though she was dealing with all these things, is amazing to me. So yeah, I'm really proud of her. But I guarantee you, every one of you is close to somebody who struggles with mental illness. I guarantee you that most of you know multiple someones who are struggling with mental illness. And many of you who are watching me right now and listening to me right now, you are you yourself struggle with mental illness. So, so what does the Bible have to say in terms of instruction, in terms of comfort? First of all, this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Terms like bipolar, depression, uh, PTSD, they don't appear in Scripture because those diagnoses hadn't been invented yet when Scripture was being written. But we read about people in Scripture behaving in ways that seem to indicate mental illness. So, for instance, Elijah, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, one of the real tough guys for God, one day he sat down under a broom tree and just prayed, God, take my life. I, I don't want to live anymore. Job, you probably are aware, Job... Uh, said, Father, I, I, I wish I'd never been born. Nebuchadnezzar, probably the most extreme example of uh, mental illness in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, left his throne, lived in, in the wilderness like an animal, eating grass, and in the words of the scriptures, he let his hair grow out like eagle's feathers and his claws like the talons of a bird. You know, in the, in the book of Psalms, the hymn book of ancient Israel, the most common kind of psalm is what we call the psalm of lament. And this is a psalm where the psalmist asks God, where are you? Why, why is this happening to me? Pours out their tears, their, their discouragement, their anxiety. That's the most common psalm in the book of Psalms. One of those psalms, Psalm 22, begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quoted those words as he was just about to die after hanging six hours on the cross. So yes, mental illness is found in the Bible, and I could give other examples as well. Nebuchadnezzar, which, who I mentioned earlier, the psychotic break he suffered uh, was specifically a judgment from God, and the Bible tells us that. And there are people who say, well, does that mean that any mental illness is really spiritual in nature? Is the key then to get right with God, to confess your sins, to pray, uh, to obey God more fully, and then will that overcome mental illness? Well, here's the thing you need to understand. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, he knew it was a judgment from God because God told him so. God sent the prophet Daniel to tell him, O oh, king, this is what's going to happen to you unless you change your ways. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't change. He continued to be prideful and arrogant. And so God allowed, uh, him, allowed uh, Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind. And that, I believe, is the case with all judgment in Bible, all acts of judgment of God. God does not whack his children for no reason. God doesn't just drop suffering in the lap of one of his kids and just leave you to sort out why this is happening. I, I think that if you look in the scriptures, every time God uses physical suffering or mental suffering as a punishment, he always makes sure you know that it's him and you know why it's happening. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be an effective punishment. And so, therefore, there's no indication that with Elijah, his depression, or Job's depression, or, or any of the other characters you can mention, Jeremiah, David, that they were being punished with depression, discouragement, despair, anxiety because 
of any sin they had committed. It was just something that happens. So in John 9, um, there's the story of Jesus and his disciples coming upon a man who was born blind. And the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, did this man sin or his parents that he was born blind? And I have no idea how the disciples thought that this, this man might have sinned before he was born to be born blind. But Jesus doesn't even address that. He says, neither one. This man didn't sin, nor did his parents, but this happened. In fact, let me read the quote. It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in other words, this sin was not a punishment from God. I mean, this, this blindness that this man suffered was not a punishment from God, but it was an opportunity for God to do amazing things. And if that's true of a disease of the eyes, then why wouldn't it be true of a disease of the mind or the brain? Some Christians believe that it's wrong to seek treatment for mental illness. I've read uh, things on the internet of, of preachers saying this and other Christian authors. Uh, to, so to someone who suffers from anxiety, they'd say, hey, Philippians 4.6 says, be anxious for nothing. Somebody who's depressed, they'd say, rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. See, you don't need to go to the doctor. You don't need to take all that medicine. Just read the Word of God and do what it says. Pray and God will heal you. And that sounds very spiritual. And I think a lot of Christians who've struggled with mental illness get caught up in that sort of thinking. And Well, if I just had enough faith, then this would go away. But remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the Samaritan's traveling to Jericho and he sees uh, the man beaten and left for dead by the side of the road, he doesn't stand there and pray for the man to be healed. He administers first aid. He takes him to a place where he can recover. In, in Isaiah chapter 38, when the prophet Isaiah comes to the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, who's dying, he doesn't say, okay, let me just lay hands on you and pray and you'll be healed. No, he says, here's what you need to do. You make a poultice out of figs and you apply it and it will bring healing. And it did. So all of us understand. I, I, I've never met a Christian who thought that it was wrong to take medicine or to seek a doctor for a heart ailment or a lung ailment or a broken bone. And so if we, if we feel that way about diseases of the other parts of the body, why not feel the same way about diseases of the brain? See, granted, we know a lot more about these other parts of the body than we do the mind. We're still learning. And so sometimes mental health uh, interventions can seem like um, sort of a, a trial and error process. We're going to try this therapy for a while and it doesn't work, so we're going to try this. And, and it can be frustrating and there are side effects to these and that can affect your behavior. I know, I, I know that uh, it's, it's not a foolproof system, but that doesn't mean we should give up on it. Pray for healing, absolutely, but seek treatment as well. There's nothing non-Christian, there's nothing anti-biblical about seeking treatment. In fact, I think it's anti-biblical to tell someone they shouldn't seek treatment. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. So one more little uh, caveat uh, before I get into uh, directly speaking to people who struggle, and that is, what about people who look at the Scriptures? What about the idea that when we read the, the Scriptures, especially the Gospels and the Book of Acts, and we see all these stories of demon possession, and we see people exhibiting what seem like the kinds of symptoms that we would diagnose as mental illness today, and Jesus or one of the apostles walks up and casts out a demon, and then they're well. And so people will look at that and say, well, does that mean that demon possession is really at the root of 
all mental illness, that people who exhibit mental illness, their, their real problem is a, a demonic issue. And the problem with that is, remember those examples I mentioned earlier of people in Scripture who exhibited symptoms of mental illness, Elijah, David, Job, Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible doesn't say that any of those people had a demon inside them. Instead, it, they seemed to exhibit mental illness, and God brought them through it. Uh, in fact, the only place in the Bible, the only place, uh, demon possession is only really mentioned in five books of the Bible, the four Gospels and the book of Acts. That comprises a period of about 20 or 30 years, the, the three-year ministry of Jesus, and then the 20 or 30 years where all 12, or most of the 12 apostles were still doing ministry on earth. And, and so think about it. You've got the entire Bible all through the Old Testament. None of the Old Testament prophets performed exorcisms, went out casting demons out. The letters of the New Testament that are written a generation later, so when the generation of the apostles is dying off, they're starting to write letters to other uh, Christians. None of those really talk about casting out demons. They, they don't tell us we're supposed to wander around like amateur exorcists, and if someone is acting in a way that's inappropriate, we should we should cast a demon out of them. Instead, it says if someone's acting inappropriately, you confront them, you uh, use church discipline, you pray for them, you love them. So my personal opinion, and, and this is a whole different tough question that we can deal with another time, but when it comes to demon possession, I think the reason why we see this small segment, this little slice of time, 20 or 30 years, where demon possession was common, where the people of God fought against demon possession, Jesus and his apostles, I think that was Satan's strategy. He knew that Jesus had come to redeem the world, and he this was sort of his last-ditch effort. This was his desperation strategy. Oh, you've come to redeem the world? Well, I'm going to do my best to hurt humanity as much as I can. If I, if I, take, if I assert control over people, then they can't follow you. And if I'm right about that, and I don't know that I am, but I, I strongly believe it. If I'm right about that, then think about how the devil's strategy backfired. Because every time Jesus came into contact with someone who was possessed, the demon inside that person recognized him and cried out his name. You're the son of God. Leave me alone. Jesus won every one of those battles. And not only that, the, the really ironic thing is the demons were the first ones to publicly proclaim who Jesus really was. Before any of his disciples figured it out, the demons had it figured out. Now, I'm not saying that demon possession can't happen today. I'm not saying that it ended around 50 AD. I don't know the answer to that. I'm saying when we see someone exhibiting signs of mental illness, that's probably exactly what it is, and it should be treated as such. So, two things, and then I'm done. Let me first say a word to people who struggle with mental illness. What should you do? Well, obviously, like we've said, pray for healing, seek treatment with a responsible counselor, or, or psychologist. Uh, if you need some referrals, we can give those to you. We, we partner with Larry Runetsky at our church, and he's been treating people with mental illness for many years, but there's a lot of great options out there. Um, share your struggles with others. This is what the church is for. You should be part of a life group, and they should know what burden you're bearing. They should know that you struggle with anxiety, or, or that you struggle with depression, or that you struggle with PTSD or bipolar. They should know that so they can pray for you, so they can support you. And most of all, I would say to you, know that your God loves you and he has a great plan for you. I, I'm sure that somewhere in the back of your mind, there's this sense of doubt that, well, I'm sure I will never do great things for God. That's for those people who don't struggle like I do. 
And that's just not true. Again, think about the people I mentioned, Job, Elijah, David, Jeremiah. They did amazing things for God, even though at least at one point in their lives, they were ready to die. They, they didn't want to go on with life. Even Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, after his experience with mental illness, he wrote Daniel chapter 4. It's a unique chapter of the Bible. He tells his own story and he glorifies the God of Israel. Charles Spurgeon, one of my own heroes, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon had depression so bad that when it would hit, his church would give him leave of absence to just go rest and recover. They called it the pastor's fainting fits because they didn't have a term for depression back then. There's a long list of great Christian men and women who have struggled with various forms of mental illness. God can and will do great things in your life. In fact, the, the kind of God He is, He loves to take what the enemy intends for evil and turn it to good. So I wouldn't be surprised if He took your own struggle with mental illness and turned that into the main thing He uses to do amazing things in the world around you and through you. So don't be discouraged. You are important. And now to people who love those who struggle, I, I just want to say this. There is hope. Medical science is learning new things all the time. Treatments are becoming more and more effective. But our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is in Jesus. I had a professor in seminary who taught, I took a course on the Gospel of Mark. Just the whole semester we were just studying Mark. Probably my favorite class I ever took. And probably my favorite professor I ever had. Um, but when we got to Mark chapter 5, that's the day I'll never forget. Because Mark 5 is the story of the man across the Sea of Galilee, who Jesus and his disciples meet. They cross the sea, they go over to the Gentile territories, the Decapolis, and they encounter a man who lived among the tombs, who was naked, who was covered in scars, and the disciples, they immediately want to leave because they say, we've heard about this guy, he's, he's crazy, uh, they've chained him up and he breaks the chains, there's no telling what he'll do to us, let's just leave. And Jesus walks up to the man and asks him his name. And the voice from inside the man says, legion, because we are many. A Roman legion was a thousand soldiers. This, I don't know if this man is literally saying, I have a thousand demons in me, but he's saying, I've got more than one. I've got a bunch. I think that was the demon's uh, plan or, or attempt to intimidate Jesus, but it didn't work. Jesus casts out the legion of demons from this man, and the, the story ends with him sitting at the feet of Jesus, and, and hear the words of Mark, clothed and in his right mind. And the man asked Jesus, can I follow you? And Jesus said, no, stay here and tell others your story. And then the next time Jesus goes to that region of the Decapolis, the people go from being standoffish towards him to racing there by the thousands, bringing their loved ones to be healed. And so this man's testimony has spread. Our professor, when we read that story, he, he told us about his daughter. So our professor at the time was in his 80s. Uh, so his daughter was, was middle-aged by now. And his daughter had been a a brilliant, beautiful young Christian woman, very devout in her faith. And then in her late teens, early adulthood, she'd experienced a romantic heartbreak and it had driven over the edge. Uh, she had lost her mind and had never gotten it back. And she lived on the margins of society. Uh, every once in a while, they get a phone call 
informing them that she had gotten pregnant and given birth. And so uh, our professor and his wife had to go through the difficult process of adopting this child, gaining parental rights over this newborn. And so here's this couple in their 80s who are raising uh, young children. He said, and he started to weep as he told us this. And of course, that made us weep. He, he said, I, I, there's, I feel so helpless. I can't force her to get treatment. All I can do is wait for the police to call or the hospital to call. I can't bring her into my home because she has threatened to kill my wife. I don't know what to do except love her as best I can, raise these boys, and wait for the day when I will see her in heaven and she will be clothed and in her right mind. And that is the hope that we all have, the hope that we know will take place because we're headed for a world where there will be no blindness, there will be no crippling injury, there will be no cancer or heart disease, there will be no aging, there will be no death. But there will also not be anxiety, depression, or bipolar, or PTSD, or Alzheimer's, or autism, or anything else that clouds our minds and, and distorts our personalities. Nothing of that sort will exist. And, and it just makes us want to say, Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with our soul. You have a wonderful week, and God bless you.